Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Before I start this week's episode, I can confirm the two listener meetups with Aaron and Justin from the Generation Y podcast are being held at the Liars Lounge in Manchester on July 6th and at Love's Company in London on July 7th. Tickets will be available at 6pm Greenwich Mean Time on Friday, February 22nd from belletto.co.uk. That's B-I-L-L-E-T-T-O.co.uk. The events are free, however space is limited, so make sure you set a reminder to get tickets. We will also be posting direct links for tickets through our social media accounts on February 22nd, so make sure you are following if you want to come along. Thanks, and on with the episode. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 33 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. For early ad-free access to episodes, head to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. If you have any case recommendations, you can reach us through our social media accounts. We're on Facebook and Instagram under They Walk Among Us podcast, or on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Anne Fitzpatrick, a market stall holder, lived with a Yorkshire terrier on Church Lane in Moston, Manchester. On the evening of May 30th, 1983, at 11.30pm, 
the 29-year-old dressed in her pajamas, secured the front door of her flat and got into bed. She switched off her bedside light and drifted off to sleep. Anne was abruptly woken in the early hours of the morning by her dog barking loudly. In the darkness, she saw the outline of someone standing in the doorway of her bedroom. She reached over and turned on the bedside light. The 100-watt bulb illuminated an intruder wearing a red and white woolen hat, denim jacket and denim trousers. Anne screamed. Almost immediately, the man rushed towards her, striking Anne in the face and forcing a pillow over her mouth to muffle the sound of her voice. The intruder called to someone else in the flat, Shit, there is someone in. Through gritted teeth, he pressed his face close to Anne's and said, If you scream, you will be dead. The Yorkshire Terrier made attempts to save its owner by biting the heels of the assailant, but while still forcibly holding the pillow over Rand's face, the man kicked the barking puppy almost across the room. Fighting for breath, Anne felt the pressure from the pillow lessen before she was dragged off the bed and bound with a piece of blue washing line cord. The intruder and his accomplice carried Anne through the flat and threw her onto the kitchen floor. She was unable to move as her feet and hands were securely bound and then tied together. As the two men ransacked the flat, Anne reportedly overheard one of them say the name Mycock before they fled. A portable bush television and radio, some records, a cassette player, jewellery and Anne's passport were all stolen, totalling £36. After the men left, Anne, who was still bound, managed to manoeuvre herself towards the back door and get outside. Due to her bindings, her progress was painfully slow, however she wriggled round to the front of the property. Caked in mud and soaked by the rain, she alerted her upstairs neighbour by using her forehead to ring the doorbell. She got the attention of a neighbour, Kathleen Prow, who cut her free. The two women walked to Anne Fitzpatrick's parents' house a short distance up the road and the police were notified. At the station, Anne was incredibly distressed and had a large bruise on her cheek. In her statement, she told police her attacker had light brown hair which covered his forehead. He also had an earring and a tattoo of a helmet near his thumb on his left hand. He was white, in his late twenties or younger, of thin build and about five feet seven inches tall with dark hazel eyes. The man also had an accomplice whom she overheard being called Baz. However, upon reflection, this was later changed to Gaz. No fingerprints were found at the scene, but a footprint was visible on the toilet window ledge, suggesting the men gained access through the bathroom. In a somewhat strange sequence of events, a few days after the attack, Anne visited a family that ran a chip shop close to her address. Still traumatised by the incident, she became upset so was offered a place to compose herself. As she walked through the shop and into the living area of the premises, 
she noticed the daughter of the owners was putting some photos into a scrapbook and upon seeing one of the family pictures, Anne screamed, That's him. That's definitely him. She reported her findings to police. An 18-year-old Wayne Mycock and his brother were arrested and questioned about the incident. They both had solid alibis for the night in question, which proved they were not involved. Anne went back to Collyhurst Police Station in North Manchester, Detective Sergeant Featherstone showed her some mugshots, one of which pictured Wayne Mycock. Anne admitted she was mistaken and said Wayne Mycock was not one of the assailants. A man who was already serving a suspended sentence for a similar crime was the coincidentally named Anthony Mycock. From an undisclosed source, detectives heard he might be involved. Ten days after Anne was attacked, Anthony Mycock was arrested and brought in for questioning. Mycock protested his innocence and seemed only too happy to help, agreeing to a lineup. None of the goods stolen were found in his possession, and there was no forensic evidence linking him to the crime, though he did have a brother called Gary that was often referred to as Gaz by his friends. Gary Mycock also agreed to take part in the lineup. He insisted he had nothing to hide. When the pair arrived, Anthony wasn't wearing a jacket and feeling conscious of his numerous tattoos that covered his arms and hands, he asked to borrow a jacket from one of the other men in the lineup. The jacket he borrowed was made from blue denim. Anne identified Anthony Mycock as the man that entered her bedroom, assaulted her and then robbed her. His brother Gary was not picked out, but Anne would later say she didn't know she had to pick out both men from the lineup. The trial was held at Manchester Crown Court on October 12, 1983. Anthony Mycock bore a striking resemblance to the man Anne Fitzpatrick described, 5 feet 7 inches tall, thin build, 29 years of age, and had a tattoo on his hand. In the courtroom, Anne pointed to Mycock and claimed he was the one responsible for the evening's events. From the witness box, she described turning on her bedside lamp and seeing his face. She said she would never forget his face, and his eyes. Kathleen Prow, Anne's neighbour, was not called as a witness. However, PC Marsh, a policeman who saw Anne after the incident, testified that she was dressed in wet, muddy pyjamas, a clear sign that she pulled herself through the dirt and rain. The officer testified that the victim was in a dishevelled state. Anthony Mycock denied he played any part in the robbery, he lived in Haywood, nine miles from the scene, and was certain he was home with his partner as they looked after his teenage niece. The three had spent the evening painting a bathroom, after which they had dinner, watched the television, and retired to bed in the early hours of the morning. Anthony Mycock's partner and his niece gave testimony, however they both seemed somewhat uncomfortable providing evidence from the witness box. During the trial, Anne Fitzpatrick looked at Mycock and said, 
that is the man who came into my room that evening. Anthony Mycock, a father to three children, was found guilty of aggravated burglary and sentenced to five years in jail. From Franklin Prison in County Durham, prisoner N17033 contested his conviction, but his appeal was denied. Anne Fitzpatrick left the UK and moved to the United States, settling in Orange County in California, where she found work as a nanny. The conviction of Anthony Mycock wasn't surprising. He had a somewhat checkered past. During his early 20s while living in Haywood, Manchester, he was arrested with his 18-year-old brother Peter in connection with an assault on two men outside a nightclub that also led to a car window being smashed, causing £20 worth of damage. The case went to trial in October 1974 and the brothers were charged with causing grievous bodily harm and Anthony Mycock was also charged with damaging a car window. The brothers denied the charges against them. Richard Ferguson told Manchester Crown Court that he had been on a night out with his friends at the Richmond Club, when as he went to leave someone kicked him in the back, causing him to fall over. Once on the floor, he was kicked repeatedly by a group of about half a dozen people. Peter Rayson also claimed when he was leaving the club, he was assaulted by a group of young men, one of which struck him in the face. Stephen Luca, who had already left and was driving past the club, claimed he saw Anthony Mycock in the middle of the road with a brick in his hand. The driver tried to swerve out of the way so as not to hit the pedestrian, but as he did so, the brick was thrown through the car window. The witnesses were certain that Anthony and Peter Mycock were involved. During the trial, the defendants confirmed that yes, they were outside the club when fighting broke out, however denied they attacked anyone. Anthony pushed his way through the crowd, but Peter chose not to venture near the skirmish, as he felt vulnerable due to impaired function in his arm. Anthony heard someone say, Stop that car! and believing the driver to be the person responsible for one of the attacks he stood in the road. He had to jump out of the way when he realised he was going to get run over. He claimed at no point was he holding a brick. After the jury retired to consider their verdict, Anthony Mycock was found not guilty of assaulting Richard Ferguson, but both he and his brother were found guilty of the assault on Peter Rayson. Anthony was also found guilty of damaging a car window. He received a suspended sentence of 26 months in prison. His brother Peter was sent to Borstal, a detention centre for young delinquents. At the time of the aggravated burglary during May 1983, Anthony Mycock was already on probation following a suspended prison sentence for a similar offence. The sentence handed down to him at Middleton Magistrates Court on May 7, 1982 was activated following his conviction and would be served concurrently with the sentence for aggravated burglary. 
There was, however, one big problem with Anne Fitzpatrick's story. It might never have happened. In her statement to police, she claimed that the man who attacked her had light brown hair which fell over his forehead. Anthony Mycock's hair was dark brown and receding. Anne also claimed that the man she saw had an earring. Anthony Mycock had neither an earring or a pierced ear. His defence counsel even raised this point at trial, with a medical specialist confirming that Anthony's ears were not pierced, or if they were, they had not been pierced for some considerable time as the skin had fully healed. Anne Fitzpatrick also said the man that attacked her had a helmet-shaped tattoo near his left thumb. While Mycock did have tattoos masking the skin on both hands, a helmet was not one of them. Also, Anthony Mycock's eyes were blue, not dark hazel as Anne Fitzpatrick described. She told police that the assailant had an accomplice, and at first claimed that she overheard him being called Baz. It was only when she realised Anthony Mycock had a brother named Gary, she changed her story. The main reason why Kathleen Prowl was not called as a witness by the prosecution at the trial was she didn't believe that Anne Fitzpatrick was telling the truth. Though PC Marsh testified that he saw Anne wearing pyjamas covered in mud, Kathleen Prowl said Anne's nightwear looked almost immaculate, at odds with someone bound and crawling through the rain and mud trying to raise the alarm. Anne even said in her initial statement that she changed out of her nightwear before going to her parents, alerting the police, and then seeing PC Marsh. Anne Fitzpatrick had rung her neighbour's doorbell to raise the alarm, but Kathleen Prowl couldn't understand how Anne could reach if she were bound the way she said she was. She was found sitting on a step outside the property with her hands and feet tied together, so it was impossible to reach the doorbell as she couldn't get off the ground. Anne claimed she jumped up and down, then used her head to ring the bell. Furthermore, when later referencing weather reports, it was confirmed there was no rainfall on the night of the alleged break-in. Puzzlingly, Anne used the passport that was said to have been stolen to travel to America. When two journalists from the BBC heard about this story, they went to interview both Kathleen Prow and Anne Fitzpatrick's former girlfriend, Maxine Marshall. Journalists Peter Hill and Martin Young had been working on the third series of BBC television show Rough Justice, which highlighted miscarriages of justice throughout the British legal system. Producer Peter Hill's interest in uncovering the truth came when he received a ticket for driving through a red light. Hill insisted it was green, but a police officer who witnessed the event claimed it was red. The case went to court, and though Hill was fully prepared with evidence the officer could not have seen the light from where his vehicle was parked, Hill lost. Frustrated in what he saw as an injustice on a small scale, he decided to set out and find if the same was true for more prominent cases. Rough Justice was born in 1982 and was presented by Martin Young. The acclaimed television series highlighted some appalling and extremely unsettling miscarriages of justice. While ruffling a lot of feathers throughout the UK justice system, the series sought sweeping reform throughout the judicial process. 
At the time, the CCRC, or Criminal Cases Review Commission, who now investigate alleged miscarriages of justice, didn't exist. The programme opened the public's eyes to the possibility that the legal system was not without its flaws. After interviewing both Anne Fitzpatrick's former girlfriend and one of her neighbours, the rough justice journalist landed on American soil at the start of July 1985 and Peter Hill and Martin Young decided it was time to speak to Anne. Their suspicions were raised further when it was discovered that the items stolen belonged to Maxine Marshall, Anne's former girlfriend. The couple had got into a physical altercation and split up on the night that Anthony Mycock had allegedly broken into Anne's flat. None of Anne's possessions had been taken or even moved during the robbery, just Maxine's belongings. In an unrelated incident in the UK, a warrant was issued for Anne's arrest, but she fled the country and found work abroad as a nanny. Using over half a dozen different investigators, the journalists Young and Hill managed to track Anne down. A researcher posing as someone doing a survey on the local area found out that Anne's parents were due to visit her in the coming weeks. The rough justice team monitored the comings and goings at the house until the Fitzpatricks left and the team monitored their journey to America. They even had a researcher on the same flight. A photographer captured Anne Fitzpatrick at the airport with her parents, then tracked her to where she was living. When the journalist finally spoke with Anne, she at first claimed she was American and didn't know anything about the case. Realising she was caught in a lie, she then accused the Mycock family of threatening her, despite them having no idea where she lived. While they were unable to document the first two short conversations they had with Anne, the journalist asked her for an on-camera interview which she finally agreed to. The interview was scheduled for the start of July, however she never turned up. She claimed she needed emergency dental surgery after some stitches in her mouth had come loose. Curious to know if she was telling the truth, the rough justice team tracked down Anne's dentist and the receptionist said that Anne had never even had any teeth out, let alone any stitches. When the rough justice production team met Anne for the on-camera interview, they noticed that she had shaved her head. They were told Anne had a brain tumour and was in the process of having chemotherapy. In subsequent years, no one can verify if her claim was actually true. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. During her interview for Rough Justice, looking somber, Anne Fitzpatrick told the journalists the whole thing had been made up. Anthony Mycock was innocent. Anne said, I was very emotionally upset and at the time I thought I had been burgled. And, um, now I want to make that matter clear that I was not burgled. And at the same time, it was, um, a figment of my imagination. She was asked if she regretted her actions. Anne said, I feel sick. I feel very sad. She was asked what she would like to say to Anthony Mycock, and Anne stated, I would like him to be taken out of prison immediately and be released. Well, I'd like to put my arms around him and tell him I'm sorry. Justice team flew back to the UK and then filmed a segment outside Franklin Prison in County Durham where Anthony Mycock was being held. 
Presenter Martin Young said that it had taken two years for innocent people covered on the Rough Justice television show to be released. As if addressing the Home Office directly, Martin Young stated, Surely, with this devastating new evidence, they must release Anthony Mycock now. Surely they can't leave him in prison for a crime that never happened. The episode of Rough Justice titled The Case of the Perfect Proof was aired on October 3rd, 1985. A few days after the programme was shown, Anthony Mycock's common-law wife, Diane Moore, was interviewed by the Guardian newspaper. She hoped Anthony would be home by Christmas and described the events of his arrest, conviction and incarceration as a nightmare. She said, When he first went to court, I thought he'd be home in a few days. A petition made by both Anthony Mycock's partner Diane Moore and his mother Mabel Shaw was handed to Downing Street. They hoped Prime Minister at the time Margaret Thatcher would intervene. It was reported that if the television show provided enough evidence, the case could be referred to the Court of Appeal. It was suggested there was a possibility that a Queen's pardon could be obtained, which meant no further legal proceedings would be required. Also, if a sworn deposition were made by Anne Fitzpatrick in America, then she would not be needed at an appeal hearing. Chairman of the Common Select Committee on Home Affairs, Sir Edward Gardner, spoke about the crime or lack of one and said, This woman was such a prodigious liar and upon these founded such compelling evidence with a breathtaking audacity and wickedness that really passes belief that she fooled everybody. The prosecution, the defence, the judge, the jury and even the Court of Appeal Criminal Division. It was a remarkable piece of wickedness. The Greater Manchester Police Force and the Home Office reviewed the episode of Rough Justice and an urgent review of the case was ordered. In an interview, a spokesman for the Home Office would not comment on whether or not there would be attempts made to bring Anne Fitzpatrick back to the UK to face perjury charges. A month after the episode aired, Anthony Mycock's case was referred to the Court of Appeal by the Home Office. He had served two years of his five-year sentence and was already approaching an early release. The Rough Justice programme broadcast in October claimed the robbery for which Mr Mycock was sent to jail never actually took place. Miss Fitzpatrick had been the key prosecution witness at his trial, but in an interview with the BBC men, she confessed that she made up the story of being beaten, bound and robbed by Mr Mycock at her home in Manchester. She admitted that her story was a figment of her imagination. After the programme, Mr Mycock's family demanded his immediate release and Home Secretary Douglas. Anthony applied for bail during the investigation. However, during a private hearing, this request was denied by Lord Justice Wilkins. Peter Hill, the producer of Rough Justice, had been waiting outside Franklin Prison in County Durham, confident that Anthony Mycock was going to get released. Martin Young, the presenter of the television series, spoke to the press and said, Just over a month ago, we believed that we had presented startling evidence that the crime for which Tony Mycock is serving time had not even taken place. It seems quite astonishing a month later that he is still in jail, when there has been no new evidence that the crime did take place. 
Anthony Mycock's common-law wife was heartbroken, and members of his family from Manchester had planned to travel to London to greet him following his release. Diane Moore, who was too upset to speak with her partner, said, I really thought Tony would be coming home today. It has all gone very sour. I will have to ask one of his uncles to break the news to him. Anthony Mycock was in ill health and required medication to calm his nerves and help him sleep. Anthony's mother was certain her son was going to be released. She said, My hopes have been completely shattered. They have been knocked down time and time again and I'm feeling stunned at the moment. I wanted to get onto the rooftop and scream when I heard the decision. Detectives from the Greater Manchester Police Force went to visit Anne Fitzpatrick in America. At first they obtained a sworn statement from Anne's new girlfriend Susan Rourke and when they finally met Anne, a formal statement was not taken, only notes. While being questioned, both Anne Fitzpatrick and Susan Rourke claimed that Peter Hill and Martin Young had coerced Anne into appearing on the programme and admitting she had lied by threatening to lay bare her sexual orientation. Anne and Susan provided the date on which this had allegedly happened. While a damning allegation, both journalists had recorded all of the conversations between them and their subjects, including this exchange. Even Susan Rourke took a tape recording of the discussion. However, when asked to produce a copy, she told detectives that the recording device hadn't worked properly. As detectives delved further into the case, more questions arose. The items that had been stolen belonged to Maxine Marshall, Anne's former girlfriend, and police discovered that Anne had in fact disposed of some of the property said to have been stolen. Anne admitted to police that after an argument she had destroyed a television set and some records owned by her ex-girlfriend, though was insistent that she was still assaulted and robbed that night. An appeal date was agreed for Anthony Mycock. Anne Fitzpatrick returned to England and was determined to tell her side of the story. She was arrested when she landed. She faced a two-year-old drink-driving charge that had remained outstanding while she was in America. Just over two years ago, Anthony Mycock from Rochdale was sentenced to five years in jail after being found guilty of a robbery in Manchester. His claim that he was innocent was backed up a couple of months ago by BBC Television's Rough Justice programme, which not only said Mycock was not responsible for the robbery, but claimed the robbery had never taken place. In an interview filmed in California, where she now lives, Anne Fitzpatrick, who was the only prosecution witness at Mycock's trial, confessed the robbery was a figment of her imagination. She made it up because she was emotionally disturbed at the time. But she told the appeal. Anthony Mycock's appeal was heard at the Court of Appeal in London during the start of December 1985 two months after the Rough Justice television programme aired. Presiding over the hearing was Mr Justice Russell, Mr Justice Taylor and the Lord Chief Justice at the time, Lord Lane. The Lord Chief Justice, who is the head of the judiciary in England and Wales, usually sits in on important criminal, civil and family cases 
and Lord Lane had taken a particular interest in this case. Both Peter Hill and Martin Young were of the understanding they were required at the appeal hearing to verify their findings. Anthony Mycock's defence counsel Jack Price QC saw no reason for Anne Fitzpatrick to be at the hearing. He said, I have indicated as strongly as I can within my duty that I am not relying on the retraction on the television programme and that my case is based on quite other matters. Jack Price QC said that Anne's friends and acquaintances in Manchester believed her to be a fantasist and she would often exaggerate. There was also evidence that she was being treated for hysteria and depression by a consultant psychologist before the alleged attack and theft. Anne's doctor had treated her as an outpatient for a week, two months before the incident. Dr Devlin testified during the appeal that Anne fantasised and exaggerated facts. Maxine Marshall, Anne's former partner in Manchester, was also questioned during the appeal. The witness was asked about Anne, and Maxine said her ex-girlfriend was always broke and needed money. She also said Anne could be unpredictable and violent at times. When the Rough Justice production team were in America interviewing Anne, Peter Hill returned to his hotel room one day to find Anne outside his room. She had managed to evade the security on the front desk and was in the middle of pushing a small square paper package under his hotel room door. Peter Hill believed she was trying to plant drugs, however he had no evidence to back up this claim. After a short while, the appeal took a rather strange turn. While there was little doubt by now that Anthony Mycock was to be released, instead the appeal began to focus on the methods employed by journalists Peter Hill and Martin Young. As the hearing unfolded, whenever Jack Price QC questioned a witness to highlight some of the untruths that Anne Fitzpatrick had spoken of, or to highlight some of the inconsistencies in other witnesses' memories, he was frequently cut off by Lord Lane who asked him where his line of questioning was leading. In one such case, Police Constable Marsh, who initially testified that Anne Fitzpatrick was dressed in wet nightwear and covered in mud, was about to be questioned regarding the inconsistency. Lord Lane interrupted the defence counsel to spell out what he was doing. Also, Jack Price QC highlighted irregularities in the time PC Marsh recounted that he arrived at the scene. The constable testified that this was at first 5.03am, then corrected himself to 3.05am. In fact, the crime report stated he arrived at 2.15am, and when Defence Counsel Price began to bring this inaccuracy to the court's attention and ask the officer for an explanation, Lord Lane said, Can we pass on to something else? Also, when cross-examining Anne Fitzpatrick, Jack Price QC asked, Did you find you used to imagine things? However, Lord Lane again interrupted the defence and said, Ex hypothesi, that is impossible to answer, is it not? As defence counsel Price tried to question the witness about her breakup and outpatient treatment by Dr Devlin, Lord Lane said, I hate to interrupt, we have the evidence of Dr Devlin. I should have thought, speaking for myself, you have exhausted this topic from your point of view. During the appeal, Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane claimed that the rough justice journalists had blackmailed Anne Fitzpatrick into retracting the claim she was attacked, 
by threatening to expose the sexual relationship she was having with Susan Rourke in America. Lord Lane said the journalists were going to expose Miss Fitzpatrick's lesbian propensities. Anne Fitzpatrick alleged that she was coerced. She told the hearing that both Hill and Young had dictated what to say when she was being interviewed. Referring to Peter Hill, the producer of the show, she said, he pointed his finger at me and said there was no robbery, we won't hear any other story. Peter Hill was then said to have told Anne she would be deported if she didn't comply. She told the appeal hearing that the journalists claimed they had evidence she lied on her entry visa to America and she had given her employer a falsified reference. It was also claimed that Hill and Young said they had a connection with local law enforcement. Peter Hill was alleged to have stated, We have the power, we have the money, we have the contacts in the home office and we just know we're going to win this one. Anne then also claimed that Hill told her the real objective of the television programme was to get Anthony Mycock out of prison and screw up the police. Peter Hill testified that he no longer believed anything Anne Fitzpatrick said, even her claims made on rough justice. Believing nothing she said should be taken as the truth unless it could be corroborated, Hill said, I think she is a stranger to the truth. The lady is a liar. John Rogers QC, acting on behalf of the Crown, reminded Hill that he had written to Anne Fitzpatrick a few months before the programme aired and told her that she would be arrested if she returned to the UK. The prosecutor claimed that Hill was frightened that if Anne came back, she would reveal their interview methods. Peter Hill denied putting any pressure on Anne Fitzpatrick. He did agree, however, that conversations with Susan Rourke could have been interpreted as a threat, but said they were in no way meant that way. Hill stated that if Anne felt under pressure, it was because of the network of lies she had created. He went on to say, The object of the exercise was to get the truth. The truth is that she is a liar. The lady is a liar. The Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane continued to question Peter Hill and Martin Young and claimed that they intimidated, taunted and pressured Anne Fitzpatrick into providing a retraction. A great deal of time was spent dissecting and demonising their methods. Martin Young, who presented Rough Justice, told the hearing that they planned to discredit Anne but claimed the production team did this because they felt Anne's credibility was at the centre of the case. He said... We had evidence already that she had lied repeatedly. We however made it very clear that we already had a great deal of evidence already filmed in England that showed that she had told lies and people believed that it was a figment of her imagination. Martin Young addressed the appeal panel and said that they had told Anne Fitzpatrick that if she were not prepared to give an interview they would use footage they had already collected to discredit her. Counsel for Anthony Mycock, Jack Price QC, admitted that there were tape recordings of the journalist's plans to expose Anne, but it made no reference to her sexual orientation or relationship with Susan Rourke. This was played to the three appeal judges, but Lord Lane, the Lord Chief Justice, was concerned, as he claimed there were missing elements in the transcript. 
from the witness stand and Fitzpatrick said they threatened to go to Sue's home. She had an excellent record, never been to court, and the only thing they could threaten us with was being gay. Though Anne Fitzpatrick admitted to disposing of items which were said to have been stolen, Lord Lane still accepted that she had been robbed and believed that her film retraction was coerced by the rough justice journalists Peter Hill and Martin Young. He acknowledged the information gleaned by the television programme had been beneficial to the appeal and believed that no one could object to something which sets out to right wrongs, though said, television programmes are designed primarily to entertain. Entertainment and justice, or entertainment and truth, are not always compatible. He went on to say if police had adopted the methods taken by the journalists, they would have no doubt received instant condemnation not only from the courts, but also from the rough justice programme. He said, We will never know to what extent the facts were embroidered by her, but we are of the opinion that she did not invent the robbery. In summing up, Lord Lane made reference to Gary Mycock's heart tattoo near his left thumb as being proof that Anne Fitzpatrick was telling the truth. This statement was at odds with Anne's claims that it was in fact Anthony Mycock who had a helmet-shaped tattoo near his thumb. Also, Gary Mycock was never identified as one of the assailants, let alone convicted of a crime. Lord Lane conceded that the jury's decision might have been different had they known of Anne Fitzpatrick's unreliability as a witness. He said, In short, and not without the greatest hesitation, we find this conviction unsafe. In his judgment, Lord Lane was highly critical of the pressure which he said the rough justice team had put on Anne Fitzpatrick. At the appeal, the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Lane, ordered Mr Mycock to be released and ruled that the conviction had been unsafe. Lord Lane said Hill and Young's investigative methods were outrageous. There clearly was a thinly veiled threat to reveal Anne Fitzpatrick's lesbian relationship, he said. If the police used these methods, they would receive instant condemnation. It was investigation by menaces, he said. Such discreditable behaviour, I hope, will never be repeated. On December 5th, 1985, after more than two years in prison, Anthony Mycock's conviction was deemed unsafe and he was reunited with his family. Such a large crowd of reporters gathered outside the courtroom, it made it nearly impossible for Anthony Mycock to leave. Christmas. You'll be having a happy Christmas, will you? Hopefully. Tony, last word. What are you feeling? Any conversation, Bob, before you go, yes? Robert? Any, any statement? Delighted. I didn't think it was going my way at one time, you know. Uh, I don't know the big words the judges use, you know, and it sounded as though it was going against me. But eventually the officers who were sat in the dock with me turned around and said, like, you know, you've got this one, like, you know. And I was over the moon when the judge says that he'd been squashed. The only thing that was worrying me was having to go through it all again, listening to people argue about me when I've done nothing in the first place, you know. If it weren't for the rough justice team and justice itself, I wouldn't be here today speaking to you. So, what, despite uh, Lord Lane's criticisms of them, you certainly feel that they did you a good job? Well, they have done me. They've, I'm out today, they've got me out. I'm, you know, they've proved I am innocent and that's it. Diane Moore, Anthony's partner, was asked how she felt and replied, I'm over the moon. It's great. It's terrific. A dream come true. 
I don't think there are words to explain the way I feel. The judges have given me the best Christmas present I could have ever received in my life. Mabel Shaw, Anthony's mother, was looking forward to celebrating her son's freedom. I thought with what I've heard in this court today with everybody that's been given evidence against her, I thought Tony should win it. I actually thought that he should win it with what's been said in that court these last four days. I'm so thrilled and excited. God, I might start looking a bit better again if I think of age 10 years in this court. What's days. it been like this past two years? Well, it's been agony, as you know. It's been very bad two years trying to prove Tony's innocent. And it's finally been proved at last, and this is a great day. And you feel yourself vindicated? Oh, I feel, I can't tell you how I feel, honest. I feel lovely. <laughs> has it been worth it all? Oh, it has been worth it to hear this news, yeah. It's been worth every. But um, he would have been freed in a few days' time anyway on parole. We know that, but he has got his name cleared, and this has been the main thing Tony's name clear. I mean, it's been a bad thing on his record if it had never been uh, cleared. The BBC had observers at the court but refused to comment on Lord Lane's criticisms. Later, the BBC's press officer would only say, while welcoming Anthony Mycock's release, which resulted at least in part from the research into his case conducted by Rough Justice, we are naturally concerned at some of the questions raised during the hearing and by the observation of the Lord Chief Justice. We will be conducting our own inquiry. At the start of the following month in January 1986, both Peter Hill and Martin Young were suspended without pay for three months. Managing Director of BBC Television Bill Cotton says it's been established that both journalists used unjustifiable threats to secure an interview with the Miss Anne Fitzpatrick. Mr Cotton says that by using threats against her, the two journalists, Martin Young and Peter Hill, have brought the BBC, and in particular BBC journalism, into disrepute. It's not enough for the BBC to make high-sounding pronouncements about the quality and integrity of its journalism unless it's willing to defend the standards by firm action if they're threatened or diminished, says Mr Cotton. He has made it clear that but for mitigating circumstances, the two men would have been sacked on the spot. The Rough Justice programme broadcast in October... During the inquiry, the BBC found no evidence that either Peter Hill or Martin Young had threatened to expose Anne Fitzpatrick's sexuality though the corporation believed the pair's behaviour to be unacceptable. The managing director also confirmed that the pair would not be involved in any investigative journalism for two years, and their position would be reviewed in nine months' time. It would later be revealed the journalists had to accept these terms, along with waiving their right to appeal or face losing their jobs. Details emerged in the Observer that alleged the suspension of the journalists was due to pressure from Westminster. The Lord Chief Justice had condemned the pair, though there was little evidence that backed up his assertions. Also, BBC guidelines on interview techniques at the time stated, it may be necessary to go to unusual lengths in the public interest. Some felt it was yet more evidence that the suspension was made in part by the government, not the news organisation who were clashing about a number of recent programmes that had aired. Unfortunately, there was an air of hostility, and it would seem that the journalists were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Vincent Hanna, the executive member for broadcasting at the National Union of Journalists, was interviewed and deemed the punishment handed to Peter Hill and Martin Young as too severe. Given the 
kind of inflammatory statements being made about their alleged behaviour in the press and some of the things said in the Court of Appeal by the Lord Chief Justice, I suppose one can be relieved that they weren't dismissed. Um, you have to bear in mind that they have distinguished journalistic careers and their activities did result in the freeing of an innocent man, Anthony Maycock, as they have resulted in the freeing of innocent men before. These uh, men are very distinguished journalists. They are working alongside distinguished lawyers to try and right injustices. Anything that they did was motivated by a desire to see an injustice righted, to see an innocent man set free. They're concerned with obtaining a statement from a witness who uh, was regarded by the Court of Appeal as completely unreliable and untrustworthy. And anything that they may have done should be regarded as an excessive zeal and certainly motivated by the best intentions that there were. Anthony Mycock was surprised to hear that Peter Hill and Martin Young were suspended. It was just a shock to her that they should be punished or penalised for something. They've done what's good. I'm here to daylight through them. I mean, it was their fresh evidence that got me out. It's not only me now, you know, it's other people. Without their help, what are they going to do? Also, Mycock requested that the Director of Public Prosecutions reveal if a deal had been made with Anne, through which it was agreed she would not be prosecuted for the theft of a television that did not belong to her. An answer never came. During August 1986, the Edinburgh Television Festival took place, and there was a panel discussion regarding the Rough Justice series. Despite Martin Young being at the festival and due to be the leading participant, those involved in the programme's production decided not to take part. This was due to an impending $17 million lawsuit filed in Los Angeles by Anne Fitzpatrick, alleging the BBC had invaded her privacy and she was blackmailed into appearing on the television programme. During December of that year, an appeal into a separate crime, the murder of Alan Livesey, was heard. The case had also been featured on Rough Justice and another BBC television programme called Out of Court, which also explored miscarriages of justice. Margaret Livesey was convicted of the murder of her 14-year-old son Alan at the home they shared in Lancashire following a trial in July 1979. In February of that year, Alan Livesey was found bound with his hands tied behind his back and stab wounds to his face, neck and spine. There were also injuries to his face and eyelids, suggesting he had been tortured. Margaret Livesey confessed to the stabbing, admitting she attacked her son with a kitchen knife. She reportedly told officers, I saw a little kitchen knife and picked it up. I remember stabbing him a number of times. He fell to the floor and I stabbed him again in the throat. I was thinking, you bad little sod all the time, and I had completely lost control of myself. However, Margaret retracted her statement a few days later and claimed her confession was coerced by police. At the trial, the prosecution claimed Margaret Livesey stabbed her son after losing her temper. They alleged she washed the knife and turned on the gas before leaving the house. She was found guilty at Preston Crown Court. An appeal was heard 
and sitting with Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane was Mr Justice McGowan and Mr Justice Simon Brown. It was ruled the conviction was in no way unsafe or unsatisfactory and deemed the complaints about the trial judge's summing up of the case to be groundless. Margaret Livesey's appeal was denied and she was returned to Stahl Women's Prison in Cheshire. Lord Lane again believed that a television series overstepped the mark and gave comment about the BBC television programme Out of Court, which highlighted Margaret Livesey's case. He said, We came to the conclusion that it consisted of a deliberate attack on the integrity and reliability of the system of criminal justice in this country. The programme was based on a series of assumptions and inaccurate statements of facts. One would have thought one is entitled to expect something more responsible than that to emerge from the British Broadcasting Corporation. In defence, Alan Bookbinder, the programme's producer, said, We weren't trying to attack anything. We were questioning. That's the role of a magazine programme looking at the law. The lawsuit against the BBC from Anne Fitzpatrick claims she was the victim of blackmail, suffered emotional and mental distress, and was the subject of ridicule and humiliation following the screening of Rough Justice. By May 1987, the $17 million that Fitzpatrick sought was reduced to $600,000. The claim was eventually settled out of court, and Anne Fitzpatrick received an undisclosed sum. It was reported that the terms of the settlement stop her from being able to give interviews about what happened. So where are we now? Following his release... Anthony Mycock was asked if he had any desire to return to a life of crime. No. What has just happened to me has done me, you know. If I had, if I ever had any intention of getting in trouble, that has done me now, you know. I've just been through hell, and that's enough for me now, I've finished. Interest in the case faded, and Anthony Mycock continued his life outside of the public spotlight. It was reported that Anne Fitzpatrick attempted to take her life by an overdose on multiple occasions. Also, a few days before she returned to England for the appeal hearing in November 1985, she started drinking when looking after a young baby. In a state of extreme alcohol intoxication, she contacted a family member who raised the alarm and she was rushed to hospital. Since the lawsuit... Anne Fitzpatrick has remained out of the public eye. Lord Lane continued in his role as Lord Chief Justice until 1992. He had faced growing criticism from campaigners who had worked to free the Guildford Four and Birmingham Six despite Lord Lane's initial opposition. After his early retirement, he kept a low profile until he passed away during 2005. Margaret Livesey, who had been convicted of murdering her son, was released on parole in 1989. She passed away from throat cancer in 2001, but her family continued to protest her innocence. 
After a two-year absence in September 1987, Rough Justice returned to screens around the UK with a new producer and presenter. A number of news articles discussing journalistic efforts to unearth miscarriages of justice cite the Anthony Mycock case. It was felt that the treatment of both Peter Hill and Martin Young was unfair, and that Lord Lane used Anthony Mycock's appeal hearing to highlight journalistic intrusion on judicial matters. Martin Young continued to work as a TV and radio presenter, working on such shows as Panorama and Have I Got News For You, and also branched out into media training. Peter Hill continued advocating for those unjustly convicted and helped secure the release of Anthony Steele who was found guilty of the murder of Carol Wilkinson in Bradford, West Yorkshire during 1979. Anthony Steele confessed to the murder, but claimed he was coerced by police. He spent two decades in prison before he was released on parole in 1998, with the conviction overturned in 2003. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.